Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Lots of interesting news today. Anthony Fauci is finally stepping down after a very long tenure, 38 years, in the federal government. And, of course, after a very controversial two-year run in the pandemic. Um, Anthony Fauci says he's not actually retiring. He is stepping down from his government positions. He still wants to form the next generation of government epidemiologists. I would heartily encourage people not to take Anthony Fauci's advice, given the many issues that we've had with Anthony Fauci over the last two plus years, um, including monkeypox. And, you know, I wrote a piece about this just so I can get the the, um, the breaking news up at hot air. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't mention the monkeypox thing. The, the, the federal government, the NIAID, got completely um, uh, wrong-footed on this as well. And this was a disease that we know about. And we didn't store anywhere near enough vaccines for. And their response to this is, well, just take one-eighth the dose and we'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, that is a completely uh, insane response. That's not the only thing, of course. You get the... You know, the eviction moratoria, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, the school closures that Fauci was part of, um, and that all turned out to be, uh, at least in the first year, counterproductive, and then in the second year, irrelevant, because as the variants progressed, they became weaker and weaker, they produced milder and milder uh, symptoms, and we're, we're to a point now where we're still seeing Los Angeles County slapping masks on, in large part because of the type of um, uh, hysteria that Fauci uh, generated over the use of masks for a variant that doesn't make people sick, and especially children. They don't make children sick at all. Uh, and yet Los Angeles County is going back to a mask mandate. These mask mandates are continuing to percolate. You've got the federal government still trying to enforce the mask mandate for air travel, uh, even though they lost in court over that, for, again, no particular good purpose. There's really no uh, real use data that shows that masks are blocking transmission of this for that matter vaccines aren't either this is endemic it is going to fly around there's not anything we can do about it now uh, if you want to gripe about that go to beijing but we don't need to keep isolating americans and slapping masks on top of them because it's pointless and it's useless and you'd think that an epidemiologist would be looking at the data that you can get right from the cdc's website and realize Hospitalizations are not going up, not even correlative are hospitalizations going up uh, for uh, COVID-19 variants that are, uh, that are cycling through now. Um, uh, the, the, even the case rate isn't really peaking. <laughs> I mean, nobody's, nobody's getting sicker with this. It has become a type of mild flu or bad cold for almost everybody who comes across it. And don't forget that... Even mild flus can be deadly for certain at-risk populations. We didn't slap masks on everybody to deal with that situation. So this is no longer a novel virus, and people like Anthony Fauci are the reason why we keep treating it that way. So it's long since time that he's hit the road. Uh, Rochelle Walensky is going to try to overhaul the CDC to, to repair some of the damage that Fauci did to it um, in the course of dealing with this pandemic. So... Uh, as I put in there, by Fauci. I mean, honestly, this guy has been a uh, albatross 
around the credibility of public health agencies, especially at the federal level. He should have been gone a year ago, if not earlier than that. So I'm not even here to, to salute his federal service. Controversies with Fauci go all the way back to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. And if you don't know about how Fauci was demonized by the left back then, I'd suggest you do some reading on this. This guy's been on the wrong side of practically everything. And he's going to get this, you know, um, hero send-off uh, after 38 years of mostly getting things wrong. And this is everything that's, this is everything that's wrong with technocrat rule. And I think if, if, we've ta if we've learned any lesson over the last two years, it's how bad that can be. Because you can't trust the technocrats to get the job right. That's the reason why you make, why public policy has to be made by elected officials who are held accountable for those failures. There's been nothing, no accountability whatsoever at all. And that was true in the Trump administration too, for the failures associated with the, with the pandemic. Zero. The guild protects its own. It's a reason why you don't leave technocrats in charge. It's the whole problem with expert, te you know, with technocratic technocratic governance in the first place. Woodrow Wilson was wrong. <laughs> what you want is accountable governance by elected officials who have to answer back to the voters who are the ones who are supposed to be sovereign. And so this is, <clears throat> I think, a good opportunity for us to clear house. Other breaking news, or not so much breaking news, we, uh, we're still looking at that um, apparent assassination of Daria uh, Dugina in, in Moscow, and whether or not that, or Dugina, maybe it's Dugina, uh, and whether or not that that was aimed at her father, who is a very close confidant of Vladimir Putin, uh, or at the daughter, who was an activist um, for the, the Russo-Ukraine, for Russia's U invasion of Ukraine. Nobody's really quite sure what's going on there. It seems very unlikely that Ukraine would have run the risk of planting that particular bomb for that particular result because their resources are short and they're mostly, in fact, they're entirely cons uh, consumed with trying to stop Russian lines of communication. That's the aim right now so they can isolate the troops that are there and then start to grind them down. They don't have time to go out to Moscow and run flyers on, you know, um, you know, public relations types of assassinations. It's it's overall detrimental to their effort. If you're going to do something like that, you go after somebody who's actually commanding troops or 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 you know controlling resources that are coming into Ukraine, not just somebody who's the philosopher king of you know Russian imperialism, um, as Alexander Dugin apparently is. Um, We've got, uh, I got a lot of stuff today, by the way, about economics. The NBC poll today, or it came out yesterday, came out late yesterday, uh, shows that, you know, 74% of the public think that America's going in the wrong direction. Only 21% think it's going in the right direction. There's a new Gallup uh, survey on something that I hadn't really heard much about called the Life Evaluation Survey, where the suffering index has reached by far its highest level in the last, I think, 16 years higher than it was during the 2008 Great Recession, higher than it was during the pandemic. And in fact, it's gone up nearly two points since Joe Biden took office. So it's gone from 3.9 to 5.6% of people who are whose, whose life evaluations put them in Gallup's suffering category, highest level that they've ever measured in this. 
And this goes along with a lot of other um, polling that shows wrong direction. It goes along with a lot of other data showing that real disposable personal income has, has, has fallen for the last five quarters in a compounding fashion. So simply going one quarter above the zero line is not going to solve this. You know, the second quarter was a half percentage point lower than the first quarter. The first quarter was 7.8% lower than the fourth quarter of last year. The fourth quarter of last year was X percent below what happened the quarter before that, and so on. These are compounding, and there's a reason why people feel miserable. There's a reason why 69% or 68% in that same NBC poll think we're in a recession. It's because for them, they are. <laughs> for people who have uh, limited um, personal income, they are feeling the pinch. And even you can see this in buying habits. I, I link to Walmart and Target uh, statements from the second quarter uh, that show that uh, their consumers are moving away from, from brand names into generics. Why? Because they don't have as much money as they used to have. And that's true in other places as well, but it's pronounced at Walmart and, and Target. So that tells you that whatever's happening, it's hammering, you know, it's hammering the working classes. And that's, and that makes up the vast majority of people who vote in America. And my point in, in highlighting all of this is that there's this idea that somehow none of this matters um, in the midterms or it doesn't matter as much. Um, and that Joe Biden's deeply underwater job approval and favorability numbers don't matter as much because they passed a bill last month or this month, excuse me. Um, and so Democrats are rebounding. They're successful. They're, they've made legislative achievements. Well, <laughs> unless, they, unless they show an immediate impact on people's lives, that is that and five bucks will get you a cafe latte at Starbucks. And these days, it's uh, it's not even a um, uh, a tall or a grande. It's the um, what's the I, whatever the smallest one is. I can never remember that. It's the small. <laughs> it's the small. Whatever the small is, that's the one that the five bucks buys you these days, thanks to inflation. I'm not even sure if five bucks gets you that much these days at Starbucks. All right. Coming up next, I get a chance to talk to my uh, good friend, John Hinderocker of Powerline, powerlineblog.com. I haven't talked to him in a while. He's also at the Center of the American Experiment. That's americanexperiment.org. And we talk about the FBI's credibility and why we need to be speaking up about this and why we don't need to shut up as some people are, uh, are asking us to. We need to hold the FBI and the Department of Justice accountable. And we also talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's going on up in Minnesota since I've left. Uh, so, yes, I, I was deeply interested in those topics as well. I hope you will be too. And then after that, stay tuned for uh, a brief message on how you can subscribe here and also su subscribe at Hot Air. Thanks for listening. And here's John Hinderocker. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Great to have you with us. Joining us today, uh, one of my really good friends from back in the Twin Cities, back in the Northern Alliance Radio Network days, John Hinderocker of PowerlineBlog.com, also at the center of the American Experiment in uh, Minneapolis in the Twin Cities. And John, it's been way too long, man. And it has been. It's great to be with you. You know, I haven't seen you so much since you 
you fled the blue state of Minnesota. The, your quality of life must have just declined sharply, though, when you migrated away from a blue state. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, John. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, I spent 23 years, 24 years in the Twin Cities and uh, living in a Mexican food desert, man. I'm telling you right now, I'm, I've been down here. I've been eating Mexican food three, four times a week, just trying to make up for two decades of shortages here. <laughs> Well, you know, I got nothing against Texas. My oldest daughter and her husband and now twin boys, uh, close to a year old, live in Austin, Texas. So. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. I, I have excuses to get to uh, Texas these days, too. Well, you know, on your way down and on your way out, if you're, if, that is if you're driving, of course, uh, you know, ping me. I, uh, we got we to gotta get together and, 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 and have Mexican food out here. So there you go. Um, <laughs> Well, I, I do kind of miss Minnesota from time to time, and I, I certainly miss you guys because it's a lot. Of, you and Scott, uh, just a blast hanging around you guys for you know the last twenty years or so that we have all been doing this, and you know you guys are still doing uh, great stuff at Powerline, obviously, and you and I are both writing these days about the FBI and its credibility crisis, and I think even since you and I talked about doing this particular segment a day ago, there's more that's come out that's that's really uh, starting to question exactly what's going on in the FBI these days. Yeah, you know, and I would I would frame this uh, with a bit of history as I did in my Powerline post. This is how the left operates. There's an institution in our society that is viewed with almost universal respect. And leftists say, oh, it would be great to take that over and deploy its power on our behalf. And so they do take it over. They are great at taking over organizations. And what happens is they take over an organization, they, they, they deflect it uh, to serving leftist purposes, they abuse whatever power and influence the institution has, and then they're disappointed to find out that, that the organization no longer enjoys the nearly universal admiration that it did before they took. We see this over and over again. I mean, for example, yep. you know, uh, the universities, you know, uh, Harvard University, once a, a, you know, a tremendously respected institution and properly so, taken over by the left, run into the ground, now uh, by no means uh, universally respected. Right. Um, you, you can do this with the media organizations. The New York Times used to really be a kind of standard of journalism and, and, and seen by people, you know, broadly across the political spectrum as some kind of an arbiter of, of truth of what's really going on. The newspaper of record, remember that phrase? Oh yeah. Well now, of course, you know, the left took over the New York Times and now it's just a worthless rag that is viewed with contempt by more than half of the people. And I think the FBI, we can we can kind of place in that historical context. And when you and I were growing up, well, there was a TV show called the FBI. I right? love that show, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., yes. I mean, everyone respected the FBI. If you had done an approval, you know, a, a poll on the FBI in those days, it would have had 98% approval and, and the 2% disapproval, those would be criminals, I suppose. I mean, everybody, everybody liked the FBI. Well, okay, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you a little bit on this because I think that this, it's also important into in what we're talking about here is that the FBI, first off, had uh, did its own press right they did its own they did its own public relations and you know herbert uh, not hoover, hoover j edgar hoover <laughs> one of those hoovers uh was instrumental in that 
And there was a lot of myth-making that was going on, and a lot of that collapsed in the 1970s. So yes, when, when we were growing up to a point, the FBI was well-respected, and then it had massive crises when all the stuff came out about what Hoover had been up to, what his, um, what his senior leadership had been up to, and the, you know, the COINTEL, uh, COINTEL pros and, the, um, and other, other types of things that were going on where it became very clear that they were highly politicized and supposedly they were going to clean the place up. And this has sort of been cycling ever since for the last 50 years or so. It just seems like it's cycling backwards these days. And uh, yeah, I mean, you make a good point, Ed. I mean, the stuff came out about spying on um, uh, Martin Luther King, spying on various presidents, J. Edgar Hoover's sort of bizarre uh, reign, which went on way too long. Yep. I don't know, though, that that those revelations damaged the FBI as an institution as much as what we're seeing now. I don't think, so So the latest, what, what I wrote my post about is the fact that the latest Rasmussen survey finds the FBI's approval at 50% with 46% disapproving. That's down, I think, from 60% just uh, with less than a year ago. Yep. I, I suspect that throughout all the period that you're talking about there, Ed, the FBI's approval rating, nevertheless, not 100%, not like, not like it was when we were kids, but nevertheless would have remained high. But I think what we're seeing now, and, and, and the other thing, of course, in that, in that Rasmussen survey, the thing that's really shocking is they, they quoted to respondents a, a, a quote from Roger Stone, you know, the former uh, Trump associate, and Roger Stone said that a group of politicized thugs at the top of the FBI are using the FBI as Joe Biden's personal Gestapo. Yeah. Do you agree with that or not? Mm, <laughs> I don't know. The, Wait, I mean, do I, that, might be a, that might be overstating the case a little bit. I mean, I'm not even sure I agree with that, right? Right, yeah. I mean, um, um, politicized thugs using the FBI as Joe Biden's personal Gestapo. That's pretty strong. 53% of respondents said, yeah, that sounds about right. Only 36% said, no, I don't agree with that. And only, let me look, let me check this here. I wrote this down. Only 26% strongly disagreed with that really yeah. over the top characterization of the FBI. And yeah, I mean, but it's tragic. It's tragic, yet because I mean, well, I think what we're seeing here is the trashing one by one of our institutions yeah. by the left. Yeah, you know, and this is, I mean, it's a concern. And I think it's not just the fact that, th that the FBI is misbehaving to the extent that it's misbehaving, right? I mean, the, the thing that I wrote this afternoon, right before we got a chance to talk, was Paul, Sperry, um, Paul Sperry's investigation that got, he published it in the New York Post at Real Clear uh, Investigations which you know, showed that the same people who were involved in the um, Crossfire Hurricane probe, that's the Russia collusion thing, were involved in the um, investigation into you know, the, the classified documents that Donald Trump allegedly had at Mar-a-Lago. Now, on one level, that would make sense because it would be an Espionage Act violation, even though it's not espionage, that's what it's called, and that would normally be handled by counterintelligence or intelligence um, uh, units within the FBI. So in, on one hand, it makes sense. It's still within that same framework. But I mean, they're talking about the, you know, Brian Auten, who's been called out a couple of times, including Chuck Grassley, 
just three weeks ago about, uh, you know, whistleblowers are alleging that Auten was part of this FBI attempt to, um, to sway the media into reporting that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian uh, disinformation when it turned out it wasn't at all. And, um, and Chuck Grassley specifically and explicitly demanded an explanation from Christopher Wray about why Brian Auten was involved in this at all and what's going on at the FBI. And then you get this, and Paul Sperry is writing that, well, Brian Auten is involved in this, at least to some extent. Um, and he's actually supposed to be undergoing a disciplinary review that's been going on for, what, three, four years based on the Horowitz report. And Christopher Ray was testifying last week, or last month, excuse me, last month. Oh, well, that's not complete yet. It's been three years. <laughs> yeah, he's going to retire at some point. Well, like, it sounds like that they're trying to run the clock out on this thing. <laughs> and so... You know, you, you hear it from Christopher Ray and from Merrick Garland. Oh, all this criticism is generating threats against the FBI. You guys should be ashamed of yourself for, for criticizing the FBI. That's a whole other <laughs> problem for me as an American who wants to hold, uh, you know, government institutions accountable, right? I mean, I'm not in favor of people doing stupid stuff like threatening the FBI. I can't even imagine anything stupider than doing something like that, like that nutcase down in Cincinnati uh, did, um, what was it, last week? I mean, that's idiotic. You're not going to get anywhere doing that kind of thing. But that's, well, no, but, 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 that, but that's not tied to my criticism of the FBI either. No, and it's absolutely ridiculous. Look, look, you've gotten death threats. I've gotten yep. death threats. If you are active in the public eye, you get death threats. Take a number. I, I'm totally unimpressed. <laughs> totally unimpressed by that. I mean, we are entitled to criticize an out-of-control, lawless FBI. And it's not our responsibility if some nut out there goes over the top in an email to some FBI office. And by the way, if there's anybody who's likely, you know, if you make a death threat against the president, what happens? The FBI comes knocking on your door. Well, what if you make a threat against the FBI? <laughs> I assume the FBI comes knocking on your doors. Yeah. So as you say, that is not a, a genius uh, move. By no, whoever does it. no, I, I highly recommend that people don't do stupid stuff. Um, but but that's where we're going with this, where and it's not just the FBI. It's not even just the government. There is an overall trend, John, that to to equate, you know, speech with violence. So this has been going on for years. Right. You can't criticize transgender policy because that's hate speech. Uh, you can't criticize uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter because uh, you're you're um, you're engaging in hate speech when you do that. Uh, we are being asked to shut up and go along, um, rather than having debates over serious public um, policy issues. And it's bad enough when you've got activists who are taking that tack. It's really bad though when government officials are taking that tack. Yeah, speech is violence. At the same time, violence is speech. So when the Black Lives Matter George Floyd rioters were burning down several miles of Lake Street in your old city of Minneapolis, oh, yeah. that that was that was referred to as protest. That that was, that was speech on the part that was of, justice. Of no, no, that wasn't even that wasn't even speech. It was justice. It was mm. it was justice. It was reparations. The looting was reparations. Remember that argument? Yeah. Yeah, whereas on the other hand, actual speech is is figurative violence. It's a topsy-turvy world that we're living in. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, too, because I just got done talking with Nick Searcy, um, the actor, right? 
who just um, published a short time ago the uh, documentary Capital Punishment, you know, with an O, Capital Punishment, about January 6th. And I was remarking to him how much, how much effort has gone into tamping down any even questioning of what the FBI was doing that day, whether they were doing anything. You know um, what they've done and the, what they've done after that. The level of these prosecutions, the the shrieking about insurrections, when and he makes this point briefly in the documentary. We had actual insurrections going on in Minneapolis, in Seattle, in Portland, Portland Atlanta, Georgia, Washington D.C., New York City, where armed thugs, armed gangs seized territory and declared that the United States sovereignty did not run there any longer because they were in charge. That's that's literally an insurrection, and yet nobody's talking about those things. A couple of those things might even still be going on as far as I know. I mean, what about George Floyd Square in Minneapolis? I don't know what the status of that was, but that was going on for months where the police wouldn't go and in there. Let me, let me just suggest that you not go to George Floyd Square to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> and see whether law and order has yet returned. I would I would avoid that location. Well, I'm avoiding it from about 1,500 miles away, so yeah. I think I'm safe. But yeah, I mean, yeah. but I mean, it's a no-go zone for people, right? I mean, nobody's yeah. talking about it anymore. But are well, there the been multiple? Patrolling? There have been multiple murders there. In fact, there was a murder there just last weekend at George Floyd Square. There have been a number of them. I mean, it's just it's absolutely unbelievable. But you know, you made a point earlier that I want to go back to. Um, Ed, in referring to the Russia collusion hoax. Yep. I mean, that, in my opinion, that was a real watershed in American history. And now when these journalists whine about why doesn't anyone trust us anymore? Well, it's because you perpetrated the Russia collusion hoax. That wasn't their first sin, obviously, or their last, but it was a watershed. And I think if you ask, well, why, why do people not trust the FBI or the CIA? Because they helped to perpetrate the Russia collusion hoax. That, that's, you know, that's not, that was a huge deal, Ed. It was a huge deal intended to swing a presidential election. And when it failed at that, intended to disable an incoming administration at which it largely succeeded. And that's not the kind of a thing where somebody can just say, oh, sorry, I guess we were wrong. I mean, many of us, many millions of us are never going to have confidence in institutions like the FBI and the CIA after the dishonorable, I mean, that's putting it very mildly, yep. role that they played in, in perpetrating the Russia collusion hoax. And and again, this gets back to the the whole politicization and the, the uh, you know, the attempts to tamp down any sort of criticism of these agencies as you know I, I i you can't take twitter as real life but i mean there are people who are throwing around the word traitors and treason for merely questioning what the fbi is doing right or criticizing the fbi you're almost in an area now in in terms of public discourse of les majest and I, I mean that's not that's not american freedom that's not that's not freedom of speech that's not holding government accountable. That is uh, every bit as authoritarian as people like to pretend or at least claim that Donald Trump was. Well, except that he wasn't. That's a conversation for another day. Right. Yeah. But, but Ed, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is that is completely un-American. And one of the things that's happening, Ed, is while the, while the powers that be are trying to squelch criticism of government agencies and so forth, 
at the same time, people aren't buying it. So, yeah. so in American Experiment, we have just completed some polling of Minnesotans, registered voters in Minnesota. And the results are going to be out in the October issue of Thinking Minnesota, our quarterly magazine. But one of the things that we did is we asked about confidence in various institutions in our society. And, and this is in Minnesota, you know, which if there's any place in the country where there's a culture of respect for the establishment, you know, respect for institutions, it is the state of Minnesota. And I'm, tell, I'm telling you, these findings are shocking. The extent to which people in this state, and it's true across America, have lost confidence in our institutions. I'll just give you one example. One question we asked is, you know, how much confidence do you have in the public health establishment nationally and in the state of Minnesota? By two to one, by two to one, people said they do not have confidence in the public health establishment. Yeah. Now, that means CDC and the Minnesota Department of of health. And so at the same time, that if you dissent from Dr. Fauci's dictates of the moment, you know, whatever they might be today, you know, you lose your Twitter account or you get suppressed on YouTube. At the same time, you know, despite those efforts, the word has gotten out. And Americans have really lost confidence in many of our institutions. And frankly, I, I think that the, the, the efforts to suppress dissent and to suppress criticism have probably only fed that loss of confidence. I think people yeah. might have more confidence, you know, if they saw that these things are open for discussion and that there are, you know, reasonable criticisms being made and maybe in some cases, reasonable answers being given. Well, I think that the, the pandemic and the way it was handled by the CDC and the, um, you know, the, uh, Fauci at NIAID, I, I mean, I think it really did undermine confidence in what we call expertise rule or, you know, um, uh, what's what's the other uh, technocrat rule, right? The idea that uh, the, the Woodrow Wilson idea that government by experts is better than government by elected officials, and and I think that this that that was a real moment where um, that idea, to put it bluntly, really showed its ass, right? I mean, <laughs> just it <laughs> fell apart, and and so you know, it's been falling apart since Vietnam at a minimum. Well, right? yeah. That, that, you can go back. You can go back to to Wilson himself and ask how well did it work out for you, President Wilson? You know, and I like to say, as you know, I was a lawyer for many years. I tried many, many, many jury cases, and I cross-examined in the course of my law career hundreds of expert witnesses, maybe into the thousands, very likely into the thousands of expert witnesses. And I like to say that if everybody had cross-examined as many experts as I have, this, this irrational belief in the infallibility of experts would disappear. Experts are like everybody else. That some of them know what they're talking about, others don't. Some of them come up with theories that, that really stand the you know, test of time. Others come up with theories that crumble when you start asking them questions. You know? So the fact that somebody is an expert, has credentials, whatever, uh, does not mean that we should follow his lead blindly. I'm, I'm making a note to myself right now. I got my pen out. Never get cross-examined by John Hinderocker. Okay, now I feel now I feel like I've got that note in in place. We've got a few minutes left. I do want to talk about something else. So you you mentioned that there's a you talk at, at Powerline about the wave of renamings that's been going on for the last couple couple well, of years. Well, this has been going on. Yeah, this has been going on for a while. Uh, and 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 what caused me to write about it is that there was an article uh, in our local newspapers about some renaming going on here in Minnesota. Again, not for the first time, 
But the particular um, uh, instance that gave rise to the news story, Patrick Henry High School. Patrick Henry High School is, is, uh, is giving up that name. They've appointed a committee to, to try to find a new name. And of course, the problem is Patrick Henry's family owned slaves way back in the 18th century. He was from Virginia. Yep. I, I, I suspect that what, what the liberals really hate about Patrick Henry is that he was a patriot and he was vehemently pro-American independence, but you know, they use the slavery thing. And then the same news story talked about the fact that um, there are two other schools in the, in the same district that have renamed elementary schools within the last year. One of them was Sheridan Elementary, named after Phil Sheridan, the great Civil War general. Right. The other was Jefferson Elementary. Well, you, neither Phil Sheridan nor Thomas Jefferson is qualified any longer to have elementary schools named after them in, in Minnesota. So those two schools were, were named Las Estrellas Elementary School and Ella Baker Elementary School. So I don't have any idea who Ella Baker is or was, but apparently she's of greater significance in American history than Thomas Jefferson. Well, I mean, so I understand why people keep pushing back against Thomas Jefferson. Don't agree with it, but at least there's an argument there. Phil Sheridan actually freed the slaves, right? He actually <laughs> defeated the Confederacy. As you pointed out, he was one of um, Ulysses S. Grant's most effective field commanders. Um, I mean, he was a, a large part of the success that, that Grant had in, in the war effort. And so isn't that the kind of guy that you actually want to- uh... well, Little Phil, little Phil Sheridan. Yeah, if you're looking for somebody who was on the right side of the slavery issue, if that's all we care about, well, hey, how about, how about Sheridan? And of course the answer, Ed, is that when the Civil War was over, Sheridan stayed in the army. He rose to become the top, the top general in the, in the U.S. Army. And he spent the last part of his career uh, as an Indian fighter. Ah. You know, he fought in Indian wars in the, in the, uh, in, in the West. And, and one of the things that he's remembered for is his comment, the context of which is not clear to me. And the content, the comment itself is kind of ambiguous. But at one, at one time, Sheridan said, all the good Indians I ever saw were dead. And so, and so he's gone down in history as not just an Indian fighter, but supposedly an Indian hater. Although I'm not all sure that that's true. Um, but in any event, that's the reason for Phil Sheridan. But I, I got to add the other one that I mentioned on Powerline, Ed, as you remember, and, and, and that is Henry Slip Sibley. Henry yeah. Sibley High School in St. Paul, Minnesota is named after the first governor of the state of Minnesota. Well, why not? I went to Mullet Elementary School in Watertown, South Dakota, named after the first governor of South Dakota, right? Right. And so this is a natural kind of thing, name a high school after the first governor. Well, the reason they changed the name to Two Rivers High School, no controversy there, <laughs> Yeah, right. is because of Henry Sibley's role in the Great Sioux Massacre of 1862. When a bunch of Sioux warriors went on a killing spree, slaughtering 600 men, women, and children, but mainly women and children, including 100 children under the age of 10 who were murdered by the Sioux Indians, usually in ways too barbaric even to be repeated. Um, when word of these depredations got as far as St. Paul, which is, you know, is quite a ways away from the Minnesota River Valley. Right. 
uh, Henry Sibley, who had recently turned over the reins as governor to Alexander Ramsey, after whom Ramsey County is named, yep. he organized, I called it a militia. I think there were some kind of newly enlisted regular soldiers there, but I think it was basically a you know, organized on the spur of the moment, um, band of un, untrained and untested militia and soldiers, and and marched them rapidly across the state of Minnesota, where they confronted the rampaging uh, Sioux and soundly defeated them, uh, bringing the the so-called Dakota War of 1862, which was not so much a war as it was just mass murder, but they brought it to an end. And Henry Sibley, for 150 years or whatever after his death, was correctly regarded as a hero of American history for putting that, that murderous rampage to an end. But in today's world, Ed, our people have gotten so crazy and our world so upside down that now um, he's reviled. Yeah. Henry Sibley is reviled uh, for the role that he played. And so there is no longer a Henry Sibley High School in St. Paul, Minnesota. Which is a shame because that's where my son went. Literally, that's where my son and, went. You know, these, these battles are really important. And the left understands how important they are. They want to rewrite our history. They want to take our history away. They want to recast it as an evil history. Because if you think that our history is evil, that means our country is evil. And yep. it, 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 that justifies taking it in a radically different direction, leaving behind such institutions as our constitution, among others. And that's exactly what the left is, is trying to accomplish. And that is what the center of the American experiment is pushing back against. I know we've got to let John go here in just a moment, but i got to get this in one more time. AmericanExperiment.org is where you can find this. You can get the, um, you can get the Thinking Minnesota uh, magazine uh, from AmericanExperiment.org by signing up there. And, uh, and John, how can people find you other than AmericanExperiment.org? Well, that's the that's the place to go for 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 the organization American Experiment. There's fresh content there every day, as well as our magazines, our papers, our videos, all that stuff. And you can read me every day on Powerline, PowerlineBlog.com, or just Google Powerline one word or two, and we pop right up uh, every day. We're out there sticking it to the left. Are you on Twitter? By are you still on Twitter? You know, or? I was. I, I lost my Twitter account. That's a story in itself. Oh no! I got an email from Twitter saying that somebody had logged. I like. I, I was not big on Twitter. I had like fourteen thousand followers, you know. But I got an email from Twitter directed to my username, you know, to me at, at my email address, saying that somebody had logged into my account from New South Wales, Australia, and changed the email. <clears throat> if that wasn't you, click here. And I think, what the hey, that wasn't me. So I click here. So a screen comes up and it says, type in your username. So I type in the username that they just addressed the email to a half hour earlier. And it comes back. We have no record of any such user. <laughs> and so I tried over and over again. I tried various workarounds. Various people sent them emails saying, hey, you, you canceled this guy's account. They steadfastly denied that I had ever had a Twitter account. <laughs> Talk about revisionist history. Oh, right <laughs> well, you're not missing much, John. But, uh, you know, but so if you're looking for John, go to powerlineblog.com or go to americanexperiment.org. That's simple enough, and you don't have to be on Twitter to do those things. John, I know you got a, another uh, call to go to. Thanks for spending some time with us. We're going to do this again real soon. Great to be with you, Ed. Have a great afternoon. You do the same and stay tuned for one last message from the Ed Morrissey Show.
Thank you for watching and listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support the Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.